admit that I was looking forward to preaching in person as well as online this time, but that was not to be. But I am very glad to be able to be speaking to you all this morning, nevertheless. My name is Caleb Jones, if you don't know me, and I work uh, in the office as the church administrator and ministry intern. One of the fondest memories I have of growing up was going on family vacations. My dad, uh, as a pastor, always said that in order to feel like it was an actual vacation, we had to actually get away. So even though we didn't have a ton of money, it was always a priority to be able to go somewhere on vacations. And many years, that somewhere was Florida. We would usually drive the way there instead of flying. And while this was a long drive, I always found it pretty exciting. One of the specific things I looked forward to was driving through a couple tunnels that go through mountains along the trip. We did not always take that way, but that, that involved these tunnels, but I always tried to convince my dad to go this route because it was very exciting for me as a kid to go through these long tunnels that were dark apart from the small lights. And it felt like you were being transported to a different world. This was exciting because it was a different experience, but it was not scary because we knew we were only going to be in there for a finite amount of time. I believe I would actually time it to see the exact number of seconds it would be. This would be a very different experience though, if I were fearful of what was on the other side of that tunnel, or if I wasn't sure that the end was coming. And this is how the moments in our life, which feel like they are dark tunnels, feel like. We never talk about times of darkness or uncertainty as fun experiences. This, this maybe has never been as real as it has been this past year. This pandemic has felt like a dark tunnel that we are all collectively going through, but we do not know when we will see the light come through to mark the end of it. In times such as these, it becomes so hard to deal with anything other than the situation we are in. We have tunnel vision, and it seems to become our sole focus to wait for that light to shine through to mark the end of it. One thing I have observed in the last while um, is a fascination with the end of the year 2020. I have to break the illusion a little bit here and tell you that when I am recording this is actually still 2020. So you guys might may have some revelation as to the fate of the world and if everything did magically get better when the clock struck 12 on December 31st. But I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that the world's woes didn't supernaturally end with the end of 2020. But as this year has wound down, it seems that people have been fervently attempting to will its end to come sooner. And this has somewhat perplexed me. What do people think will happen at the end of the year? Do people think that COVID and the other struggles can be blamed simply on the year that they happened in? Regardless, this reality is that 2020 will always be remembered as the year of COVID-19. As much as we may try to avoid it or talk about something else, it has consumed the news, our minds, and our lives in this past year. And so the temptation to be consumed with the question of when it will all be over is logical. We have spent months hoping and looking, and now that there is some good news, the light at the end of the tunnel can't come soon enough. But maybe the tunnels in your life that you first think of have nothing to do with the pandemic. 
Maybe at some point in the past or in the present, you have gone through something that seems so difficult, so all-consuming, that it feels like there's nothing else you can focus on, and you are just waiting for this season to be over. Maybe it's a serious illness, where the question is not when, but if there will be an end to it. Maybe it's a strained family relationship, financial hardship, a serious, a, a series of deep depression. These times come in all of our lives and leave us all wondering and looking for when the relief will come. In David's life, we see him in one of these dark tunnels, except his tunnel was more of a, of a cave. Well, a literal cave, which he was stuck in as he was running for his life from the wrath of a king who wanted him dead. He knew that God had planned for him to become king and that God had promised him great things. But in this moment, he is afraid for his life. But what we see him do and how he responds to the situation he is in can teach us a lot about how to handle our own dark times. Today, we'll be looking at Psalm 57. So let's read the passage together now. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of God. In this psalm, we find David, someone we know well and who is such a key figure in scripture, at one of the lowest moments in his life. This is, in my view, a really powerful psalm and one that I find very real and amazing to see how David responds to the situation and what comes out of his heart in these circumstances. David is a man who already in his young life has wrestled lions, fought giants, and accomplished great feats. And here he is again, alone, discouraged, and in immediate danger. In the foreword at the beginning of the psalm, we get the context of where David is at this point. This is a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. There are some differing understandings of exactly where this lines up in the chronology of David's life, but a common understanding is that this would line up with what we see in, the, in 1 Samuel 
22.1, which says that David escaped to the cave of Adalam. The word miktam, while technically unknown, what it actually means seems to refer to an engraving or a poem. This psalm is very interesting because it really is a live look at the way David is reacting to his circumstances and processing what is happening. This is raw and you can feel the emotion in every word. Many psalms are like this, showing a great deal of emotion, inner battles, and the real pleas and praises of people in difficult times. And I think this is why psalms can really speak to us and encourage and comfort us in times of need. Each time I have needed to just jump in and find scripture to read to someone in a hospital or someone looking for comfort, I go to the psalms. They don't read like historical accounts or doctrinal teaching, but raw, real, and relatable human emotion. We certainly see this in every word of this Psalm of David. In the very first verse, David gives the best description of the opposition he was feeling and facing so palpably, the storms of destruction. He is in the cave waiting for the storms of destruction to pass by. How many times have you felt the same way? hopelessly waiting for the storms to pass. What's interesting in this description we see of the attacks David feel, which are described most vividly in verses four and six, is that they do not necessarily focus on the physical danger he finds himself in. Sure, these certainly aren't minimized. We see that he feels that he is in the midst of lions and fiery beasts, but we see even more so that what is troubling him is the sharp words and verbal attacks of those opposed to him. We can't fully understand exactly what he was feeling, but we can imagine the weight of the political turmoil he finds himself embroiled into. I don't think any of us could argue that the world of politics, no matter the country, party level, etc., isn't full of division, slander, propaganda, and corruption. And I think it would be unwise to assume it would have been all that different in Judah in 10-something BC. Same problems, different century. Because of this, the words of the people were stinging in David's mind. He says that their teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongues are sharp swords. Surely there would have been factions who were supporting David, but also factions supporting the king, who saw David as a great threat and agreed with Saul's desire to be rid of him. Who knows the smear campaigns and the lies that people were spreading about him. But whatever they were, were very much affecting David. The much maligned expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, comes to mind here. As we see how, for David, nothing could be further from the truth. He had experience with sticks and stones. He used stones to kill a giant. And he had, as a young man, wrestled a sheep out of the mouth of a lion with his bare hands. To put it simply, David sounded like a really tough guy. We may lose sight of that if we think more about his, sharp, his heart playing and poetry, but this guy was hardcore. And in those instances, it seems like he is completely unbothered. Just trust in God and did it. But the attacks of words and deception are a different story. He had been working for Saul, playing music for him, becoming a leader and a national hero, and Saul turned on him completely. David posed too great of a threat to him and his rule. 
and he became Saul's enemy. The truth is often that the biggest enemy to someone is an ally you become threatened by. And this is where David found himself, a fierce warrior and rising star who was in a cave hiding for his life from the man he was trying to help. G.K. Chesterton has a really interesting quote which says, there are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. It may be conceded that the mathematician that four is twice two, but two is not twice one. Two is 2,000 times one. Isolation without any allies is painful, and this is what David was feeling. The language he uses to describe his attacks are so colorful and descriptive, you can feel and almost see what he was going through. He refers to them trampling on him in verse 3, which makes me picture swarms of Black Friday shoppers bellowing into a store, knocking over and running over anything, not paying attention. He refers to them as setting a net for his steps, which for me brings to mind the movie Home Alone and the booby traps that young Kevin sets for the burglars to fall into. I make these comparisons jokingly, as the reality of David's attacks were much more harrowing and less comical. But at least for me, they help to picture the dramatic way David is feeling about the opposition he is facing. It isn't subtle or in the background, it is up front and in the open. Saul never comes across as a low-key or reserved guy, and the way he makes an enemy of David certainly lacks the royal tact or subtlety we would tend to expect. Saul made it very clear that he was out for David and that he did not want him to be able to rise up further, gain more popularity and power, so he was on the hunt. Much of the fabric of David's life would have felt like it was crumbling down. He was appointed to be king, so it made sense that he had come in to serve Saul and help him and gain influence. This would have seemed like the logical ascent to the throne, perhaps, in his mind. But now it is cut off. He is being hunted and is helplessly alone. What was he to do? This psalm shows us the answer to this. We see here how we can respond when we feel, like David, that we are stuck in a cave and the storms of destruction are raging. God gives David a model for prayer, shows him how to respond and handle his opposition, which we can use for when we are in the tunnels too. We can see what we are able to do and how we are to rely on God by looking at the prayer God gave to David in his time of most need. First one gives us a really powerful step one. David begins this psalm with the plea, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. He doesn't waste any time because he can't afford to. He doesn't pat his prayer at the beginning with a little thank you or expressing blessing. We will see that and get to that later, but that is not how he starts. He is afraid for his life, so he begins by pleading for mercy. This certainly isn't unique to this psalm, seeing a uh, see, unique to this psalm, seeing a cry out to God for saving or protection, but it is very powerful. This is not where David dwells. He only spends a couple lines crying out to God, but this is where he starts. His first reaction is to call out to God for help. Even though this is a dramatic way to start the psalm, it would be 
easy to read the whole thing and lose sight of how this is David's first step. While this is not the focus, laying this foundation as he looks to God leads him to the conclusions and declarations he makes through the rest of the song. By crying out to God for mercy, we see that David is recognizing how God is the only place he can look to for saving. He is an immensely talented and gifted guy, which is clear in everything he does in his young life. He has success in battle, success in music, beginnings of success in leadership, but no skill that he possesses has any power to help him now. This relates to a story Watchman Nee shared from one of his experience as a Christian leader in China. A group of young Christian brothers were gathered together to swim in one of the many creeks that run throughout the countryside there. Since most were not good swimmers, they were careful to remain close to the bank so as not to get in water over their head. One of the brothers got out a little too far and began to struggle in the deep water. Realizing his predicament, he began to cry out to his neighbors, who by now were out of the water and, and drying off. Help, save me, he yelled, all the while thrashing his arms and legs in a futile attempt to keep his head above water. Brother Nee knew that only one man was experienced enough at swimming to provide some assistance, and he turned to him for help. But strangely enough, the would-be rescuer calmly watched the man's plight but made no move to save him. Why don't you do something? They all screamed in unison. But the man just stood there, apparently unconcerned. After a few moments, the drowning man could stay afloat no more. His arms and legs grew tired and limp, and he began to sink underwater. Now the slow-moving lifeguard dove into the creek and with a few quick strokes reached the victim and pulled him to safety. Once all was well, Brother Nee was beside himself. How could you stand by and watch your brother drown, ignoring his cries for help and prolonging his suffering? But the man calmly explained, if I were to jump in immediately and try to save a drowning man, he would clutch me in panic and pull me under with him. In order to be saved, he must come to the end of himself and cease struggling, cease trying to save himself. Only then can he be helped. The spiritual lesson here is hard to miss. Ni concluded, and we also conclude, that just as a drowning man cannot be saved until he stops struggling, so must all who would be saved by Christ. When we come to the end of ourselves, then God is able to rescue us. This psalm begins with David coming to the end of himself and trusting that God is the one who can save him. The result we see of David crying out to God is that he declares that God is his refuge and the one he can find safety and protection in. I can't lie, this is one of my favorite descriptions of God and pictures of how we can relate to him and is one of the main reasons I chose to preach on this psalm today. I think that the picture of God as our safe place during the storm is overwhelmingly comforting. There's nothing more relieving and satisfying than coming to grips with the truth of God's love and protection towards us. We are in his hands. Immediately after crying out to God for mercy, David declares that in you my soul takes refuge and in the shadow of your wings 
I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. He isn't questioning it. He isn't asking God if, if he can rest in him and if he can trust him. He is declaring that this is who God is and this is the firm foundation which he is putting his trust in. The picture of finding refuge in the shadow of God's wings is tremendously beautiful. This is a picture of God as our mama bird, and we are this helpless baby. I picture specifically a big, majestic, powerful bird. According to animal researchers, the, technically, uh, the technical designation for the most powerful bird of prey is the harpy eagle, even though it weighs only 20 pounds. This is our picture of God, a protective, powerful, regal creature who is exceedingly skilled at protecting their young and hiding them in their wings. Some days we all need to take refuge in the shadow of God's wings, surrendering to his protection as we realize that he is the only place we can find true safety. This is a powerful picture that David paints and one that can show us a great deal of how we can relate to God. When I think of the feeling of being in desperate need for a shelter, I think of one of the wildest experiences of my life, which happened when I was working at camp as a teenager. My camp would have a leadership training week each year, which may sound fun, but was truly very intense and much more resembled a military-style training camp slash wilderness camping slash teamwork building and a lot of the things we had to do. Part of this was that we had to keep a fire going for 48 hours straight, and we also were not allowed uh, inside for a lot of the week. So we had to take turns to keep the fire tended all throughout the night. One night it was pouring rain when it was my turn to watch it. And, and I think I'm supposed to have a partner, but I'm alone. And I'm out in the middle of a field in the pouring rain in the middle of the night, trying to keep a fire alive. In that moment, the only shelter I had that I could use and still be by the fire was a soccer net with a tarp over it. And you best believe that in that moment, I was relying on that as much as I could to keep me dry and keep me safe, but I could only do so much. Just as the tarp soccer net was really not much of a shelter in the storm that I was in, the cave was not an impenetrable fortress for David. He could not trust in the cave to save himself. While this was his temporary physical refuge, it wasn't the actual refuge he was trusting in. That was God's protection. And this picture of David trusting in God as his refuge, while completely lacking proper physical refuge, paints an incredible picture. He was able to declare God as his refuge because of his trust in God's faithfulness towards him which he had already experienced many times in his young life. He knew and claimed that God would fulfill his purpose in him, that he would send from heaven and save him, that he would show his steadfast love and faithfulness. Once again, we see that there are no question marks. David was not asking God if he could do or even would do these things. He was confident and assured of it. We cannot be fooled. These weren't easy statements for him to make. They came after much struggling, difficulty, and pain. It is a true struggle of faith to declare your trust when you feel afraid and in danger, 
but God gave him that confidence. Furthermore, we see in verse 6, he claims that they dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. He likens the design of his persecutors to pits, which were commonly dug by hunters to entrap their prey. These were made in the usual path of the victim, and in this case, David says, before me. He rejoices because these devices had recoiled upon themselves. Saul hunted David, but David caught him more than once and might have slain him on the spot. David had experienced God's faithfulness and therefore did not have to question it, as he could already rejoice in how he had provided. Now, the last half of this psalm is interesting because it would read very different if it were standing on its own. Isolated, it would seem simply to be a psalm of praise. But put in the context of what we have seen, we see that David is pursuing God, glorifying him even in the most dire of circumstances. I mentioned earlier that he didn't start off the psalm with a short sentiment of praise or thanks. And that is because he dedicates the whole second part of the psalm to doing so. He has pleaded to God for mercy, declared him as his refuge, and now he is choosing to rejoice and praise his name. It would be very easy to forgive David for omitting this part, or maybe just reducing it to an exclam uh, exclamation or two, but this is not what he does. He dives in headfirst, deciding to give glory to God beyond the circumstances he is in. This isn't lip service. This is God working in his heart to show David where his strength comes from, which leads his heart to rejoice. We see that David has a line which is used as a refrain in the middle and end of this psalm, like the chorus of his prayer. He exclaims, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David wishes for God to be exalted and glorified, not expressing any ulterior motive, not stating that if God is glorified, maybe Saul will be defeated. He simply longs for this. How often is this truly the cry of our heart for God, to be glorified with no further qualifications? When we trust in him and are seeking to live our lives to honor him, this should continually be the cry of our heart. To see God exalted, this is such an important and key statement that David repeats it as the final line of the psalm. This is where his heart could rest. Another line that he repeats twice to give extra emphasis is the declaration that his heart is steadfast. I recently heard someone use this term to describe their spouse, and I thought that there may not be a more beautiful or incredible term that could be used to describe someone you love. Steadfast, grounded, steady, committed. As I reflect upon my heart, I see how this is so different from where I am most of the time. And it makes me think of my grandfather who passed away recently. There is no human being that I would ascribe this word to as much as I would to him, especially when it came to his relationship with God. He was so devoted to prayer, dedicated to evangelism, steady in his walk. And I can only pray that someday I will have a fraction of that steadfastness. David's life may not always look steadfast. He certainly hit rocky patches and has huge struggles, but we see at this time 
he aligned his heart to focus on God. Pursuing God and his glory for us involves consistent and intentional prioritization of the things of God. Worshiping and praising him should be a priority, something that can't be missed in the life of the believer. We prioritize things based on how much we think they are essential to us, whether to our survival, our health, or often just our own happiness. When we are struggling to take the time to be with God in the ways that we should, it shows us that we need to realign our opinion of what is essential in our lives. I know I can speak for my own life that too often when it is hard, worship falls off the list. But this is not so for David. As in the cave, he sings and makes melodies, giving thanks to God and praising his name to all nations. One thing 2020 has shown me is how easily I neglect to praise God and rejoice in him when it is not easy or convenient. When the times of corporate praise or prayer are not accessible in the same way, it becomes so easy to leave them out of our lives rather than finding an alternate spot where it can fit in. But David gets out his guitar and starts singing at 4 a.m. That is what we see here. He calls to awake the harp and lyre, the musical instruments of the day, and awake the dawn. David is going to usher in the new day with praises to his heavenly father. Despite everything, David says, I am going to start singing anyway. In this moment, he was all alone and is a choir of one. But he declares that he will give thanks to the Lord among all peoples and all nations. I wonder what this looked like for David. I wonder what him awaking the dawn to bring praises to the Lord from inside a cave where he is hiding would have actually looked like and sounded like. But what we can know is, is that it was a sweet sight and a beautiful sound to God. He asks for and demands our worship because that is what he deserves and that is what we owe to him. This psalm doesn't really show us the ending. This is just a small piece. We don't see, thank you God for helping me prevail over Saul. We don't see him get out of the cave. But we do see how God worked in his heart to provide what he needed in his most desperate moment. In this, we see that even in the caves and even in the tunnels, no matter what storms are raging, that God's love is our light. David is able to praise God because he is confident in his steadfast love and his faithfulness. God didn't bring him out of the cave in this psalm but he showed himself to David while he was in there. In the same way, when we are feeling as though we are stuck in a dark tunnel, instead of looking for the light at the end of it, what we need is for God to come and be the light in it. Of course, we do know how this story goes on from there. He does get out of the cave, becomes king, and is one of the most important figures in all of scripture. God works powerfully in David's life in so many ways. And how he showed himself to him when he was in the cave at rock bottom is one of the most key. John 1.5 says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Jesus is the light that came into a dark world. As Christmas time is just over, I'm sure Jesus being the light of the world is fresh in a lot of your minds. When Jesus came, he was not well received and he was coming into a dark world. But the darkness didn't overcome it. The light that is Jesus Christ is not one that is fleeting or can go out by any human effort. Instead, this light changes our lives. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, He is the light that not only shines in our dark tunnels, but has shone in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God. Jesus came into this world to be the light, and all we have to do is accept him, asking him to come into our lives to lead and guide us, acknowledging that that on our own, we cannot do it. On our own, we are alone in the cave with no hope. But when we know Jesus, we know that he is there with us. He is our safe place when the storm is raging, and he is the light which shines in the darkness, working in our hearts to praise his name and trust in his faithfulness. What a powerful truth that is. Let's pray to close our time now. Dear Father, I thank you so much for how you give us psalms like these to look to and to see how you worked in David's life how you brought him to such a desperate place that he had to cry out to you in order to realize and declare that you are his refuge so that he could praise and glorify your name. I thank you that you you helped him when he was in that cave and in that same way that you help us when we are in our tunnels in life, when we don't see the end coming and we don't know when it'll come. Lord, I just pray that you would help all of us to trust in you, to trust in you today to not be always looking for when things are over, not always looking for the light, but looking to you as the light of the world. We would focus more on you as our light than any situations or anything that comes our way. Thank you that you love us, you are faithful to us, and that you are our refuge. Pray that you would be with us this week, and I pray these things in your precious name. Amen. If you are joining us for the first time today, please let us know by commenting below. I hope that today's message reminded you of the God that we serve and that he is the light that comes into our tunnel. When we know him, we don't have to always be searching for the end or waiting for the light. He is our light and he is our refuge. If there's someone in your life who'd be encouraged by this message, share it with them. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and have a great week.